Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning. Welcome to Church of the Advent. We're really delighted to see you here worshiping with us today. I want to begin our sermon today by asking if any of you have felt over the last few years, perhaps there's been a little extra strain on communication or on relationships. And some of you are chuckling at the way that was understated. In response to a global pandemic, we've endured limitations on our in-person communication. At the same time, we've seen online communication falter under the weight of increased polarization and decreased civility. It's been really challenging to watch both in-person and online communication take such a hit at the same time, because after all, aren't relationships tough enough already? Isn't communication already challenging enough? A recent psychological study published in Personality and Individual Differences surveyed over 100 participants asking them a series of questions about challenges they face forming and maintaining adult friendships. And of the 40 plus reasons they gave, uh, let's just notice three of the more common ones. People answered, I do not speak easily to people I've just met. Some said, I do not open up easily. And some just went for the broad reason, I find it difficult to communicate with others. In light of all that, I want to paint a contrast. I want us to look the other direction now after, after having considered the challenges and the difficulties. How amazing is it when you know there's that friend who wants to spend time with you and be close to you? When that friend proactively reaches out and initiates conversation, communication, relationship with you? When that friend's friendship and life is consistent over time? How beautiful does that feel? The longing we feel for that ideal friendship, whether we can think of someone right now or whether we just wish we could think of someone right now. In our passage today, we see that God satisfies that yearning, that longing. We're going to listen in now, uh, again, as Jesus, during the Last Supper, in the upper room, tells his disciples what our Trinitarian God, or our triune God does, Father, Son, and Spirit, to communicate with us. I have many things to say to you, Jesus says, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So in Jesus' words, we hear today that our triune God communicates with us. That's the big point. The God of the universe, God of everything, Father, Son, and Spirit work together to reach down and communicate with us in three ways. Closely, compassionately, and consistently. So let's look at those three attributes of, of God's communicating work now. We immediately see God's intent to be close to us in Jesus' words. I have many things to say to you. You can't say many things to somebody you don't want to spend time around. That's kind of a given. It's almost foundational. God wants to communicate closely, to move near, to be with us. And as amazing as that truth sounds, that God wants to be close to you, some of us may feel a little bit like, ah, is that too good to be true, though? We might feel like Isaiah, seeing God in a throne, surrounded by angels, crying, holy, holy, holy. And our first response might be, woe is me, not neato. God wants to be close to me. For as long as humans have known God, we felt this tension between the seemingly competing truths of God's transcendence, God is immeasurably higher than any of us, uh, and beyond the limits of our finite comprehension, and God's imminence, 
In humble condescension, God stoops down and gets close to us on purpose. The theological balancing act between these two truths shows up immediately. Genesis 1, in the beginning, the God of everything, the Almighty God, speaks into existence the entire physical world and then steps in and strolls in a garden with some people every day. The ideal state we see in Eden reminds us that imminence, God being close to us, is a necessary part of the equation. But immediately sin enters a picture, and we see humans shying away from God's closeness. We see our efforts there in the garden to to get away from God. The tension between God's majesty or transcendence and closeness or imminence continues through Israel's story. When we get to the tabernacle and then the temple after Moses, we find that the narratives in Israel's life pose questions like, how closely will God communicate with people? What can break that communication down? Does that communication have to happen in a certain place at a certain time? Are there people who are in the middle who proxy that communication? And all these questions show up as Israel's story continues through the Old Testament. And we get to the end of the Old Testament, having seen people wrestle over and over again with God's transcendence and imminence and then our efforts to get away from God. And they leave us with a deep longing for an answer because we haven't seen the perfect answer quite yet. We long for what we saw back in Eden, but we're left longing for something better. And then Jesus arrives. You turn the page, and you see Jesus immediately named Emmanuel, God with us. And with a name like that, we're not surprised to notice that right away he has a tricky relationship, a complicated one, with the temple, the place that was, up to that point, God with us. In fact, John introduces Jesus as the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, John slips in the word tabernacle into the word dwelt. It's literally the verb that is tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. John is introducing, in the past we had a building for God with us, but now we've got a person. Jesus walks into the temple and immediately throws out the people who had corrupted it with commerce and greed and dishonesty. And he throws a bit of fun wordplay into there, destroy this temple, his body, and in three days I will raise it up again. Once again, putting himself into that place of, I'm really God with us. The temple has done that, but now I'm here. And then Revelation concludes the Bible's story Did you know we're going to get through the whole Bible today in one sermon? Boom, we finished it. And we're only in the first point. Revelation concludes the story with John's visions of God's unmediated, uninterrupted, and unbroken presence with us, with God's people, redeemed humanity. The images of kingdom and temple that John has leaned on so heavily in those visions of Revelation, representing the Old Testament hierarchy of communication and relationship, that's all replaced by the perfect presence of Jesus, right there in the city, so bright they don't even need a sun. The sun replaces the sun. The Bible story begins and ends with God directly among us. And what's most beautiful to me in that story is Jesus at the heart of it all. It's not just that he showed up after a few thousand years of God trying some other stuff and then made some changes into a bigger story and then left for a while and hopefully he's going to come back someday and fix some more stuff. No, the whole story is Jesus' story. Jesus is the ultimate final, complete, the perfect answer to the question of how do God's transcendence and imminence work together around us? How can we be close to God? The complete otherness and infinity of God and every bit of real, true, genuine humanity all mashed up in one person, Jesus. Neither one diminished. As the perfect intersection of all the transcendent majesty of deity and the imminence experienced as humanity, Jesus is one of a kind. 
So much so that I'd remind us back of John chapter 1 again. John introduces Jesus by saying a really striking thing. No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Now, John knew the Bible stories. He'd read the Old Testament. He knew about all the people who had met God face to face. He knew about Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, David, Solomon, Job, the prophets, Isaiah in this morning's reading, Ezekiel, Daniel also. So how does John know all those stories, know all those people who saw God and say no one has ever seen God? What's John thinking here? I think we can toss out the ideas that John forgot the Old Testament or that he was trying to subvert or contradict it. Not the case at all. I think that leaves us to conclude that John is making a statement of really hyperbolic or exaggerated contrast. All those people who saw God in those ways back then, it's nothing compared to how clearly we see God now that Jesus is here. Jesus shows us God in a way that no one else's experience can hold a candle to. So, returning to the question, how does the God of the universe get close enough to communicate with us? We find the answer is clearly through Jesus. There's no clearer way to understand God than to look at Jesus. To borrow John's phrase again, to let the Son make the Father known to us. Interestingly, Paul confirms this and agrees. Jesus is, Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God. You want to see an invisible God? Look at the image, Jesus. And then Colossians 2.8, all the fullness of deity, not most, all, dwells bodily in Christ. The author of Hebrews gets even more clear, if you could. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, really emphatic statement, he has spoken to us by a son who reflects the glory of God. Once again, you want to see what God is like, look at the reflection. All these vision words keep showing up. Look at is the theme of the New Testament here. Look at Jesus. And Jesus bears the very stamp or the exact imprint of God's nature. This isn't like a rubber stamp with ink that kind of leaves 80% of the ink on the paper but misses a few parts. This is more like, I don't know if you've ever done a leather working, and you stamp into a wet piece of leather with a soft mallet and some gentle tapping, and when you pull it away, the leather has not just 80% of what was on that metal stamp, the whole thing. It's like embossing. It's perfect. It's crystal clear what God looks like. You want to see the divine nature? Look at the exact imprint. It's Jesus. Rhetorically, I'd ask, are there any other statements in Scripture that ascribe such clear and close communication of who God is to anyone or anything besides Jesus? I don't think there are. In response to statements as bold as, if you, might, if you want to know God, look at Jesus, some might cautiously object, and rightly so on Trinity Sunday, Jesus is just one person of the Trinity. Shouldn't we look at the other two to make sure we have the full picture? We don't want to shortchange the Father and the Spirit, do we? Not only is that a reasonable concern and a good question to ask, it's actually answered by the last sentences Jesus speaks in today's text. So since it's at the end of the text, we're going to put a pin in that question for right now. I'll give you something to look forward to. We're going to come back and we're going to answer that question. But before we do, we'll move into the second point, that our triune God communicates with us compassionately. After telling his disciples he has many things to say to you, in other words, God wants to be close to us, Jesus then refrains from saying all these things. He says, but I'm not going to tell you them now. You cannot bear them now, verse 12 says. Jesus actually refrains from saying all the things he wants to because he knows his disciples can and can't handle certain things. He knows and respects their human limitation, their feebleness, their weakness, if you will. The triune God communicates with us compassionately. 
I hear the words of the psalmist echoed here from Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows how small and limited and feeble we are, and God recognizes that, and God tailors communication, revelation, on purpose in a way that we can get it, that we can actually see God. And Jesus here demonstrates the same compassionate awareness of his disciples' limitations, in the same way showing us how God communicates by stooping to the level of our humanity. Theologians have long observed this stooping communication. They call it accommodation, if you want the fancy word, and have often compared it to age-appropriate communication with children. In fact, all the way back in the third century, Church Father Origen was using phrases like baby talk and little language to describe how God speaks to us. I've got a baby who's three and a half months old, and I'm not worried about dignity or majesty or any like stuff like that. I'm just a normal person. When I get down on the floor right above him and coo and giggle and talk with him, I don't talk with him the way you're hearing me speak now. He hasn't heard me say the word accommodation up till this point, I think. Um, we use baby talk because that's what kids need to hear. Um, Calvin, the theologian John Calvin, says that God lisps with us as nurses are prone to do with little children. Such modes of expression do not express so much what kind of being God is. They accommodate the knowledge of God to our feebleness. In doing so, God must, of course, start, stoop far below his proper height. Those of us who are or have been parents, who have worked closely with children, understand that a three-year-old can't behave with the same cognitive ability, emotional regulation skills, or impulse control of a typical 33-year-old. And truth be told, 33, 63, 93-year-olds struggle in those areas from time to time as well. Nobody's perfect, and that's the point. God knows that. God is not demanding we get perfect before we can get close to God. God bends low in compassion to communicate with us in ways that we, small, limited, finite, imperfect humans, can get. For example, uh, the Bible often describes God with body metaphors, eyes, ears, mouth, hands, feet, head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. Um, <laughs> in reality, God is a spirit and doesn't actually have a body. God invented the body back in Genesis. God doesn't have one other than the incarnate Christ. Uh, but that body language is an analogy in the Bible to help us understand a God who is completely other than we are. John concludes his gospel by telling us that there are also many other things which Jesus did. Were every one of those things to be written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books. So if we were going to not take just Jesus alone, but all the information about God, how many books would it take to do that? And yet God has given us a book of distilled communication that is limited by a page count that we humans can spend time with and learn enough about God. God stoops to our level. I think maybe the clearest expression of this stooping, this accommodation, is the incarnation itself. The Son emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of humanity, as Paul writes in Philippians 2. This is the epitome. This is the clearest picture of God's humble stooping, bending low to reach humans where we are. As a little side note, this informs, I think, how we invite children and even adults with cognitive limitations into church. God doesn't make anybody pass an aptitude test, a theology exam, before they can get close, before they can come and worship and participate. If you can listen to stories and absorb them like a child can, awesome. The Gospels use stories to show us what Jesus is like, and as we already noted, Jesus is God stooping down to show us what God is like. So the bar to entry, the barrier to entry is really low. The doors are open. Everyone can come on in. 
So God communicates with us closely. The triune God also communicates with us compassionately, recognizing our limitations, meeting us there. And now to return to that pinned question, how does the God overall actually get close and stay near us people, us lowly humans? And if Jesus is just one person of the Trinity, do we need more information? Is that enough to know who God is? As Jesus' final statements show here, the Trinity does work together to perfectly communicate through the Son. Our triune God finally communicates with us consistently. Looking at verse 13, Jesus asserts, the Spirit will not speak on his own authority. Instead, verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit's role in divine communication is intentionally, by design, to make Jesus the center of attention, to glorify the Son. The Spirit will communicate what is mine, as Jesus phrases it. So what is that, that stuff that is Christ's? The phrase, take what is mine, has an almost physical sense to it, almost emotion. Uh, I think it's helpful to picture a box labeled, property of the Son. That's what is mine, according to Jesus. Picture this box labeled, property of the Son. And for the Spirit to take what is mine... Picture the Spirit, if you will, reaching into the box, taking things out, and showing them to us. That's the Spirit's role, to reach into the property of the Son box and show us what's there, to make that clear for us. So that's what the Spirit does. What about the Father? Look a little further on. In verse 15, Jesus says, All that the Father has is mine. Oh, hey, there's that word mine again. Are you curious what's in the box labeled property of the Son? It's not like 70 or 80% of what the Father has. All that the Father has is in that box. That's what the Son has, everything that belongs to the Father. And that's what the Spirit is reaching in and pulling out to show us. All that the Father has through the box labeled property of the Son. The whole Trinity working together in perfect harmony to show us what God is like with the Son in the forefront, with the Son taking center stage. The Father isn't withholding any, any secrets, harboring any extra information, saving any details for himself to reveal to us. He's given everything to the Son. The Spirit isn't adding any bonuses to the, to the conversation. He hasn't written an extra appendix, appendix to throw on the end of the book. He's not got any bonus content you can download later. The Spirit is showing us exactly what is the Son's, what's in that box. So in our first point, we heard the testimony of John, Paul, Hebrews. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And now Jesus adds his voice in agreement. The Son fully and uniquely reveals all of God to us because that's what the Trinity agrees the Son should do. And the Trinity works together to make that happen. So do we need to look for extra information besides the Son or can we look at Jesus and know what we need to know about God? Jesus' answer is, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, what should we do in light of these things? That was a bit information heavy for the first section. These last couple minutes are more practical. How can we take this information and do something with it? I have a couple of recommendations what we should do in light of the fact that God, through Jesus, communicates closely, compassionately, and consistently with us. First, look at Jesus. Almost sounds too obvious, too simple, right? What's the catch? Look at Jesus. As you do, be captivated by Jesus. Adore him. Look at Jesus in your relationships with others. All the other people in the room who are walking with Jesus know something what Jesus is like. And as we spend time talking together, sharing our life stories and our, our stories of how God is working in our lives, we are showing each other Christ. That's a place to see Jesus. Even more obvious, probably, is look for Jesus in Scripture. 
quick recommendation, you might spend focused time reading the Gospels on purpose. Maybe take a few months to make a Bible reading plan that your, your re regular reading time is just steadily going through a Gospel over and over again for that whole duration. Or if you've got the privilege to do so, get an afternoon or a day away. Read a Gospel. Binge read one. You can read a Gospel at an average pace in less than three hours. And if pace is a challenge, use an audiobook to take care of pace for you, or maybe start with Mark, about half the length of the others. Try binge reading a gospel and just see Jesus in saturated, clear form all in one shot. The gospels show us Jesus' life, his actual words and actions in a way that is unique. It's a special function in the Bible. But that doesn't make them better than the rest of the Bible. They're just special. They're not better than. Acts, the New Testament letters, Revelation, all of this continues to put Jesus center stage and tell us of the story of the church and the story of all the people in it and how churches organize and behave and how it's all going to end. That's all Jesus' story, too. And of course, you probably might guess where I'm going next. You don't have to stop with just the New Testament. The Old Testament gives us Jesus, too. How does it do that? When you're reading the New Testament, see how the New Testament authors look back and find Jesus in the Scripture. Luke 24 describes Jesus walking with two disciples on, on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him at first. But after he explains everything that's true about him from the Old Testament, like that they had never imagined, they had never pictured before, after that whole conversation, they realize when they finally figure out it's Jesus, oh my goodness, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was telling us all that stuff? So look to the example. We don't have Jesus walking with us on a road to Emmaus. As awesome as that conversation I bet was, I would have loved to have traveled in that group. But we have the New Testament authors who, with the guidance of the Spirit of God, with inspiration, show us how to find Jesus in the Old Testament. Find their patterns and follow them. Sometimes you might feel stuck, or maybe like you're not quite seeing Jesus like you want to as you read, and in that case, we can ask for help. Sure, you can read a book, or you can talk to a pastor or someone at church, but also, remember, the Spirit's joyful job is to reach into the property of the sun box, pull things out, and show them to us. So if you need help, you can ask the Spirit. You can pray to the Spirit every time you read, show me Jesus in this passage. Show us Christ. Let us look at him and see what God is like. And then finally, under this look at Jesus recommendation, as you see Jesus reading scripture, your brain is naturally going to organize all the information you have about God and the world and the things you learn in the Bible. Call that a theological system or a biblical worldview or doctrines or whatever fancy words you like. The words don't matter. What matters is saturate that all in Jesus. Don't put Jesus in a little box in the corner. That's not where he belongs. Make sure the whole system, every point, every detail, every conclusion brings us back to Jesus, starting with Christ and being filtered through God revealed through Christ at each step of the way. Let Christ saturate your whole system. And then as you see Jesus, as you look at him, the second thing I'd recommend we can do with these words, with this truth is, trust the God you see revealed in Jesus. Look at Jesus' responses to people around him. Observe how he treats people who are hurting who are sick or have been injured, people who have been marginalized, pushed to the edges, ignored by society. See the kindness in Christ's face as he sits with sinners, victims, outcasts, and friends. That's God's kindness. See Jesus' tears over death, injustice, and disease. That's God's tears. Look at Jesus' passionate action in the face of injustice and corruption. That's how God acts. 
When you are sick or hurting or thirsty, yearning for justice, experiencing isolation, feeling abandoned or abused, and any other need or longing, even in the happy moments, look at Jesus and trust this is what God is like. How do I know how God views me, how God relates to me, how God gets close to me? Look at Jesus. That's what God does. That's who God is. So the God we see revealed on the Son is, on purpose, close to us. God gets near doing so out of compassion and love, stooping down to our level. And finally, God does this all through Christ consistently. There's no division within God. There's no one day God's going to be mad because waking up on the wrong side of the bed or some such excuse. No. Um, If God doesn't slumber or sleep, as the psalmist says, you're not going to find God waking up on the wrong side of the bed either. God is consistently and perfectly revealed in perfect cooperation, Father, Son, and Spirit, through Christ. So look at Jesus and trust the God you see revealed in Jesus. Father, may we take these words from your Son, and with your Spirit's help, may they shape and guide and encourage our hearts. May they give us peace where we feel frustration, uncertainty, or doubt. May they give us love, compassion, and connection where we feel distance and brokenness. And in all these things, may the life of your Son what Jesus shows us about you, become real and tangible activity and visible action in our lives as well. We pray through the Son in the Spirit for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.